Amen. The largest contract in baseball history was paid out just a couple of weeks ago, or was signed just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Trout plays for the Angels. Am I like Mike Trout, right? And then what was the, anybody know the number, the final number on it? 300 and, what was it? A billion dollars. $400 million, something crazy like that. I think Manny Machado, a little bit earlier this year, had a $330 million contract over just a few years. You know, just, just a little bit of money for those guys. Um, and so the question arises, did they deserve it? Right? Do they deserve that kind of money? I mean, that's every swing of the bat's worth like $10,000 or something like that. Um, and so it really raised this issue, this question of did they really deserve what it was that they got? Well, that's kind of our topic today is to walk into this idea of did the Jewish people deserve what it was that they experienced? Here's our, uh, do we have our slide up? Yeah, what they experienced in 70 AD with the destruction of Jerusalem and all that, all that terrible stuff that happened. Did they deserve what happened to them? And so today we'll look at that topic. Um, before we get into our scripture for today, I want to just take you real quickly to Revelation chapter 15 and verse 1, and it reads like this. It says, then I saw another sign in heaven. So this is John talking here. He's having these visions. He says, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last plagues, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And then at verse 7, he says, and one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God. Now, I've got a slide for you here, and I showed it to you last week. It's an outline of the book of Revelation. And so you can see there the opening introductory lines and verses or chapters one through two. And then we've got the uh, letters that go out to the seven churches. And then there's this vision that John has of Jesus on the throne. And then the opening of the seals, the seven seals on the scroll. And uh, so the middle part, the middle section, the body of the book of Revelation is what we've been wading through the last couple of weeks. And there's these judgments that are issued out. And that's pretty much what you're reading through the body of the book of Revelation. And those judgments start with Jesus opening up the seven seals of the scroll. And when he gets to seal number seven and he pops that open, all of a sudden seven trumpets appear. And so then you've got those chapters where the seven trumpets get blasted on. And when they get to trumpet number seven and that angel blows on trumpet number seven, then all of a sudden seven bowls appear. And with each of these opening of the seven seals, with each of the blowing on the seven the trumpets, and then again with the pouring out of the seven bowls, you get these judgments. You get the wrath of God being poured out upon the Jewish people there in 70 AD. And so today we come to the last piece, the last part of God's wrath being poured out upon the Jewish people. And uh, we'll take a look at that at Revelation chapter 16. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip over with me. Revelation chapter 16, I'm going to ask for you to stand to your feet as we read from God's Word. We'll be reading verses 17 through 21. This is the last bowl of the seven bowls being poured out. So this is the very end, the very end of all the stuff that God's going to bring on the Jewish people. Here we go, Revelation chapter 16, starting at verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there never had been since man was on the earth, so great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail 
because the plague was so severe. You may be seated. Okay, so we've just read about this last bowl. So this is the very end. You've been reading about the seven seals. You've been reading about the seven trumpets. Now you were reading about the seven bowls. We get to the seventh bowl, and so we just read what happens when God pours out, or the angel pours out the last of these bowls of God's wrath. I want to, before we get to there, we're going to take a quick little detour. The Leviticus chapter 20, it's going to tie in here a little bit later, so hang with me. Leviticus chapter 20, and uh, we want to what we, what we get in Leviticus chapter 20 are a laundry list of moral sins and, and crimes for which capital punishment is the prescribed uh, uh, response. Um, and so it warrants uh, the death penalty if you violate any of these laws. And so you've got things in there like uh, incest, you've got things in there like bestiality, you've got things in there like sorcery and witchcraft. Um, Leviticus chapter 24 expands on that list to include murder blaspheming of the Lord. Again, all of these are sins for which if I'm a Jewish person, right, if I'm a Jewish person, this is our law, this is our civil law, how we're supposed to respond to these particular crimes. If I'm a Jewish person, then I would have known that if I violate one of these laws, then the death penalty is what I'm going to get. Now, what I particularly want you to note is the method for the death penalty if I'm a Jewish person violating one of these laws. Okay, Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 2 says, the people of the land shall stone him with stones. So at the beginning of the chapter, as we're getting ready to list off all of these different crimes, all these moral sins that would warrant the death penalty, the method for, for executing a person under Jewish law is by stoning them to death. And then again at verse 27, which is the end of the chapter, they say the same thing there. It says, they shall be stoned with stones. So literally, they would take these large rocks, they'd set you over there, and then people would just start chunking them at you, Right? And so they just start throwing these rocks at you, and they do that until the person was dead. They just keep throwing them at them until they were dead. Perhaps they move in really close and smash one across your brains. I don't know how that worked. But nevertheless, they would keep throwing these large rocks at you, these large stones at you, until that person was dead. And that was the method of execution, that if I'm a Jewish person who lives under this law, that's the method that I'm familiar with. Um, there was another method that they used that they also considered stoning. This is where they'd push you off a cliff, and then they would come up with a really large boulder, and they would drop that boulder down onto you. So they push you off a cliff, you fall down, you break your legs, you break your arms, you break your back, you can't get up, and then they would stand there and kind of hover over you and then roll this boulder off the side of the cliff. Boom, it would fall down on you, and it would kill you. And that was also considered stoning by the Jewish people. Um, in ancient Israel, they didn't chop people's heads off. In ancient Israel, they didn't stick poison in your veins. In ancient Israel, they didn't hang you by the neck until you were dead. In ancient Israel, they didn't uh, hook you up to an electric chair and turn on the switch. In ancient Israel, they took out stones. This is what they did, and they'd throw those stones at you. That was the method of execution that they used for things that warranted capital punishment, that warranted the death penalty. Okay, with that in mind, let's flip back over to Revelation chapter 16. Let's kind of walk through some of these verses together. Revelation chapter 16, we're going to start at verse 2. This is the first of the bowls being poured out. Remember, we read the last bowl, bowl number 7. Here we're going to start with the first bowl, verse 2. It says, So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, that is, on the gain, on the fertile crescent, that part of, the, uh, of uh, where Israel is, that part of the fertile crescent, where the, the part of land through the Middle East that's good for farming, and it forms a uh, a crescent moon shape, and so they call that the fertile crescent. We're not talking about the whole globe here, right? They have a Greek word for that, the word cosmos, which is where we get our word cosmos from. And so, for God so loved the cosmos that he gave his one and only son. This is talking about a specific piece of dirt. And it, so it says here, the earth, um, so he poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people 
who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its images. Verse 3, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. Now, not the Mediterranean Sea, not the waters far from Israel, but the waters around Israel, the Sea of Galilee, other waters, the Jordan River, perhaps. And so, um, so that's kind of what's in view here. Verse 4, it says, The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers, and the springs of water they became blood. Verse 6, it says, And an angel cried out, For they, the Jews, have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you, O God, have given them blood to drink. And then the angel says, And this is what they, the Jewish people, deserve. This is what they got for, for how they treated the Messiah. Now, I don't want us to confuse the Jewish people that we're talking about here in Revelation chapter 16 and verse 6 with the Jewish people today. Two weeks ago, we talked about how God has a plan for the Jewish people. Read Romans chapter 11, you'll discover that really quickly, that God has a plan for the future plan for the nation of Israel. That's not who's in view here. The seven seals have been broken. The seven trumpets have been blown on. The seven bowls have been poured out. It was all focused on the 70 AD, that generation that knew the Lord Jesus. Jesus even said to that first century group of Jewish people, he said to them in Luke chapter 11 and verse 50, so that the blood of all the prophets passed and up until the present time of the first century, the blood of all the prophets and everybody up until the present time shed from the foundation of the world, verse 51, starting with the blood of Abel. Abel was the first guy in the Bible to have been murdered. He was the first person to uh, when Abel was murdered, then you know, we get capital punishment as a result of that, to the blood of Zechariah. Zechariah, that's not the guy from the Old Testament that we're thinking of. Zechariah that they're talking about here was a guy, he goes on to say, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. This was the most recent headline in the news in Jesus' day of somebody having been murdered, of somebody having been uh, a, a crime committed against them for which the death penalty would result. Um, and so Jesus says from the first murder from Abel all the way up to this guy, most recently in the headline named Zechariah, he says, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Jesus is talking to the first century Jewish people, to the people of this generation. The generation is 40 years. Remember the Lord Jesus left the earth in 29 AD. Some would say 33 AD. You know, you kind of work with the historians on that, with the archaeologists. Uh, and then the Jewish people uh, experienced 70 AD and the destruction that you see in that home slide there uh, for the series um, in 70 AD, so within that 40-year window. You say, well, Gordon, that doesn't seem very fair that Jesus would put on the Jewish people of his day stuff that Jewish people had uh, committed against the prophets, against the priests before, you know, hundreds of years, thousands of years before they were ever even on the, on the scene. And that doesn't seem very fair that Jesus would do that. Well, they asked for it. Like, literally, they asked for it. Um, when Pilate was standing with Jesus, and Jesus was, uh, was, there was, the Jewish people were given an option. Hey, do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? Barabbas is a convicted murderer. We certainly think he ought to be the one that goes, you would think he would be the one that should go and be crucified. Jesus, he hadn't hurt anybody. He hadn't even sinned before. And so which of these two do you want me to send free, to set free? And so the people said, we want you to send us Barabbas. We want you to crucify Jesus, crucify him, crucify him. They kept calling out. And so Pilate says, but I find no fault in this guy, Jesus. And so uh, Pilate says, look, I wash my hands of the whole matter. And Jesus says, or, or then the Jewish people respond, Matthew chapter 27 and verse 25, all the people answered, let his blood, Jesus' blood, be on us and on our children. Let it be on us and let it be on our children. And 40 years later, one generation later, that's exactly what God did. He stuck it 
on them and on their children. The Jewish people were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. The Jewish people of his day were the ones who rejected Jesus in person as their Messiah, and Jesus let them bear the brunt, the full weight of the wrath of God for their sins. They had taken responsibility for the act, and God said, okay, I'm going to reciprocate. Flip back over to Revelation chapter 16 and verse 7, the next verse there. It says, And I, John, heard the altar saying, These are the voices of the martyred saints who are under the altar of God there. And the martyred saints cry out in response to what the angel just said, Yes. They said, It's what they deserve. And the, and the, and the people, the martyred saints under the altar cry out, Yes, the Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. This is what they deserve. And so the martyred saints are agreeing with the, with the verdict. Okay, skip forward to chapter 7, I'm sorry, chapter verse 17, uh, what we read earlier. Let's start there. It says, it's the last of the bowls, bowl number 7, verse 17, says, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. Number 7, poured out. It's all over with. Verse 18 says, And there are flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there never had been since man was on the gain. So great was that earthquake. Verse 19, the great city, Jerusalem. You say, Gordon, why do you think the great city is Jerusalem? Well, if you skip back to Revelation chapter 11 and verse 8, it's the first reference, the first time that John uses that phrase, the great city. And he identifies clearly what the great city is. Look at Revelation 11 verse 8 with me. It says, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which symbolically is Sodom and Egypt, which is also the place where their Lord, Jesus, was crucified. What city was Jesus crucified in? It wasn't Rome. Jerusalem, that's right. It wasn't London. It wasn't Bangkok. It was Jerusalem. That's where the Lord Jesus was crucified. So the reference here, the phrase, the great city, is referring to Jerusalem. So John assigns clearly this phrase, the great city, to the city of Jerusalem. Um, verse 19 says, The great city Jerusalem was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great, that is, God remembered his wrath against her, to make her drain the cup of the wine of his fury. So God remembers his wrath against Babylon the great in order to drain out his wrath. He remembers her sins in order to drain out, in order to empty out, which is what the bulls are doing, right? To empty out, his wrath against her. Again, the reference here, Babylon the Great. You're thinking, well, what's Babylon the Great? What, what city, what nation has he been pouring out his wrath upon in order to drain out his wrath? Okay, it was more obvious to me this week in my studies than perhaps it was to you. We're talking about Israel here. We're talking about Jerusalem. Um, the reference Babylon the Great uh, would have been, um, you know, it was a city that was known for its many sins, and if, if I'm a Bible geek and somebody calls me Babylon, I'm thinking to myself, that was the, that's like calling me as a Georgia fan, a Tech fan, or me as a Tech fan, a Georgia fan. I mean, it's the worst insult that you could possibly receive, right? And so calling Israel Babylon the Great was a tremendous uh, insult. It was kind of like Revelation 11 and verse 8 back there where it referred to the great city as Sodom or Egypt. It's the same kind of concept here where they're giving these, um, these figurative references symbolic references to other terrible locations in the world, places like Sodom, places like Egypt, places like Babylon, and comparing Israel to that. Also notice there in verse 19 that the city itself, it says, gets split into three parts. Um, and so, you know, if we're thinking historical accuracy, 
accuracy, we're thinking, well, when did Jerusalem get this horrible earthquake that like fissures, uh, you know, appeared and there's, where's the evidence of that stuff? Um, archaeologically, where's the evidence of that stuff? Geologically. Well, let's look, consult our friend Josephus. Remember, Josephus was a historian in the first century. He was inside the city of Jerusalem during the siege. He was captured during that siege and then spent the rest of it um, on the sidelines in a Roman tent outside of the city. And he's documenting all the things that he saw, all the things that he experienced. And one of the things he says, Josephus writes, and now there were three treacherous factions in the city during that siege. The one parted from the other, Eleazar and his party, those that were with John plundered the populace. So faction number one is Eleazar and his party. Uh, faction number two is a guy named John. There's lots of Johns back then in their day. Um, and then also, finally, he says that John went out with zeal against Simon. So the three different factions that Josephus, who was inside the city, experienced were this Eleazar, John, and Simon. And so the city kind of broke up into these three parts, and they became these three parts that were warring against one another while the Romans were outside the walls trying to get inside. Isn't this remarkable that the Jewish people couldn't even get united during the siege of the city? It was every man for himself. Um, it was mob mentality. Um, last verse, verse 21. It says, And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. And that's it. Bowl number seven. Poured out. Dunzo. The end of God's wrath. It is done, he said, uh, there in verse 17. The hailstones ended the judgments of God. Again, back to our historian Josephus, who talked about the Roman catapults that were brought up to the city walls just prior to the city falling. And here's what Josephus writes. He writes, the stones that were cast were of the weight of a talent. The talent's about 100 pounds. Look at verse 21 one more time with me, Revelation 16 and verse 21. How heavy were those stones that he anticipates? Yeah, interesting. Okay, so verse, uh, so he continues, Josephus continues, the stones that were cast were of the weight of a talent, which is about 100 pounds. Um, <clears throat> and these stones were carried through the air Two furlongs and further. Two fur, one furlong is 220 yards. Two furlongs is 440 yards. I don't know if you're really good with your math or not, but we're talking about a distance over a quarter mile. A little bit longer than a quarter mile. So these Roman catapults are picking up these giant hail, hailstones, these giant rocks, and they're hurling them over the city walls into the city, one after, just raining in, one after another after another, from a distance of about over a quarter mile. You can imagine the damage that these 100-pound granite rocks would have done when they hit the city walls, or when they landed inside the city streets. It says, in the blow that they gave, Josephus writes, was no, there was no way um, to be sustained. You couldn't, couldn't absorb that. Not only by those who stood first in the way, but also by those who were beyond them for a great space. So wherever this thing landed, obviously anybody that was anywhere close to it would have been just obliterated. But even for some great distance, when you think about a 100-pound granite rock coming over the wall from a quarter mile away, and it lands, and I mean, the shrapnel would have just exploded out into crowds of people. Um, he says, as for the Jews, they at first watched. <whistles> what is going on here, right? They at first watched the coming of the stones, just stood there puzzling, wondering, what is this? What's going on? What's happening, he says, because they had a white color, a white appearance. If you've ever been to Jerusalem or that part of the world, you know that the stones in that area are a very pale, pale color, almost white in color. And so that's where these things would have been quarried right there locally. And that's what the, what the Romans were launching out using their catapults through the air. All right, let's tie all this up together, okay? 
if I'm a Jewish person and I'm clinging to life inside the city walls of Jerusalem and there's Romans for as far as the eye can see and I'm in the midst of this siege and there's war all around me and every person that I lay eyes on walking through the city is completely emaciated. This has been a five-month-long siege. No food. We've exhausted all of our resources. And every person I see is just totally emaciated. Uh, there are factions within the city, Eleazar's group, John's group, Simon's group. My fellow Jews who tried to escape the city are now uh, crucified literally on the outside of the city walls. The Romans came out just to torture the minds of the people who were inside. If you tried to escape, they'd catch you and they would tack you to the wall. And there are hundreds of people all across the walls around the city of Jerusalem. The stench of death and rotting corpses fills the air. There's no trees, no grass. Uh, the ground's been scorched. The ground's been scarred deeply. Um, and then all of a sudden, in my most desperate hour, when I reach the very end of what I can sustain, all of a sudden I look up into the sky, and here come this rain of stones, whoosh, one after another, after another, after another, as the catapults have been brought in, and they're descending these giant stones over the city wall, and they're exploding into the streets, and they're exploding into homes, and they're decimating the population, and it's just total chaos. And then it dawns on me, it dawns on me, as a person who is Jewish, who had seen people get stoned to death, and knew the method of execution that Jewish people would have experienced if they had committed crimes. And I realized that I am under the judgment of God. It hadn't occurred to me before. I'm seeing those stones come across through the sky, and I realize, I realize it now. Um, maybe those stones land on somebody. Maybe, as Josephus said, they explode like shrapnel and take out people for a great space. And with these catapulted stones, the city falls. The final judgment is made. The wrath of God is done. It's the last thing that the city experiences. It's the last method, right, that the Jewish people experience, the last final thing that, that, that turns the tide. As Luke chapter 11 and verse 50 said, the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundations of the world fall on me. All right, well, that's our text for today, and so that means it's time for us to ask the question we ask every week around here, what difference does all this make to my life? Say, Gordon, we're not stoning anybody to death. Uh, you know, I'm not Jewish. I'm not living in the first century. Um, Easter's coming. Um, I hope Revelation picks up a little bit <laughs> by the time we get to Easter Sunday, and it will. Um, so there's a good, really solid, wonderful, uplifting message that's coming here toward the end, and we'll get to that on Easter Sunday. But um, I say, what difference does all this make to me? Well, really great question. Let me see if we can answer that here briefly. I want to first remind us what the angel said, uh, pouring out the, the bowls of wrath. The angel declared, Revelation 16 and verse 6, for they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, this is the Jewish people of the first century, and you have given them blood to drink, God. It is what they deserve. And then the saints martyred under the, under the altar of, of heaven respond out, yes, God's judgments are true and they are just. You know, I thought to myself as I was reading over that this week and thinking about the stones flying over the wall, I thought to myself, boy, how glad I am and how fortunate I am not to have been born in the first century as a Jewish person living in Israel. 
Uh, I certainly would not have wanted to live through or experience any piece of that, any part of that, the suffering, the torturous days and night. Wouldn't have wanted any bit of it. And then the thought occurred to me, Gordon, this wasn't just a first century Jewish problem. All this suffering, all this torture, all this death. Flip over with me to Romans chapter 6 and verse 23. Paul writes these words, Romans 6 and 23. He writes, for the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. Friends, what Paul teaches us here is that every one of us is heading for a disaster in eternity. That every one of us is heading for a train wreck called hell, where we will experience torment, and we will experience suffering, and we will experience the just, and true judgment of God. And friends, it won't just last for five months. It'll go on forever and ever into eternity. So Paul says, hey, here's what your sins earn. They earn you eternal death, eternity in hell, separated from God, fire, torment, darkness, hopelessness. Folks, the folks, the people in hell today, if they could trade spots with the folks that experienced the five-month siege of Jerusalem, they would gladly make that exchange. Gladly take what the people in Jerusalem experienced over five months, over what they're experiencing for the rest of eternity in hell today. So the wages of sin, what you earn for your sin, is death. But, verse 23, in contrast to that, the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the debt that was yours and mine to be paid. He took upon his own body the judgment, the justice of God, the true and just judgment of God. What we deserve, Jesus took upon his own self and experienced that on the cross himself in our place. He took the penalty of sin upon his own body. He was suffered so that we won't, ha- so that we won't have to. He was tormented so that we won't have to be. He was beaten and scoffed at so that we won't have to be. He paid the price for our sins. They were nailed to the tree so that we won't have to go to that cross. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Um, Just a moment of honesty for you here. If you're here today and you've been thinking about heaven and hell and you've been thinking about eternal things and where I'm going to end up, when I breathe my last breath. Um, I don't want to experience what the people in, in, in Jerusalem experienced for eternity. I don't want to live through something like that. I don't want to live eternally through something like that. I, you've been thinking, I, I'd, I want to spend eternity with God in heaven. I want to spend eternity in paradise and without suffering, without tears and without uh, stubbing my toes and without uh, uh, heart disease and without cancer and without all those other things that plague us in this world. I want to be able to experience the joy of being in God's presence forever and ever. Friends, if you've been thinking about those ultimate questions of life, about heaven and hell, and I'm not sure how you plan on getting to the one over the other, uh, maybe you're planning on getting into heaven because you're going to show God your good works, because you're going to hoping that God's going to say, hey, look, your good outweighs your bad, right? And you're hoping that the good outweighs the bad, and that God will let you into heaven on that, beha- on that account. The Bible tells us that there's only one way to get to heaven, friends, and that's by what Jesus did on the cross. There is no other way. There is no other way. Why would Jesus have come and died on the cross and suffered all that he did if there was some other way for you and I to get to heaven? Oh, I'm sorry, there is another way for you to get to heaven. Just be perfect. From your infancy. Never sin. You can do that, sure, right? 
No, no one can do that. Perfection left the earth 2,000 years ago, friends. So because we have this sin problem, the wages of our sin is death, eternal suffering, and hell. But the free gift of God, what God offers us, a way out of the siege of Jerusalem for eternity, is through Jesus Christ our Lord, through his death on the cross. Let's bow our heads together. If you know in your heart today that you are here and that perhaps eternal suffering is where you're headed because you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus, I'm going to invite you to pray after me today. I'm not going to ask you to pray out loud, just quietly where you're seated. This is a conversation between you and your maker. Dear Jesus, you know the sin in my heart. I know the sin in my heart. And I come to you today to say that there's no way that I can fix my sin problem. Try as I might, I cannot make myself clean. I come to you today to put my faith, to put my trust in the work you accomplished on the cross on my behalf. Your nails were meant for me. Jesus, forgive the sin in my heart. Wash me clean. Make me white like snow. Lord Jesus, if we've prayed that prayer, if we've turned to you for the forgiveness of our sins, then we know that we have the promise of eternal life. Just that simple. You didn't make it hard. You didn't make it difficult for us to come to you, for us to experience heaven for eternity. Jesus, as we come around this table, we're reminded of your shed blood. We're reminded of your broken body. We're reminded of the work that you accomplished on our behalf. Where we receive it as a meal of celebration. We receive it as a meal to remember what you did for us. Hear our gratitude as we share in this supper together. We pray these things in Christ's holy name.